In the first five verses of the book of Job, we were introduced to a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He's blameless, he is upright, he fears God, he turned away from evil. He is richly blessed by God in terms of his possessions and also in terms of his family. And after those first five verses give us the setting, the attention of this poem now turns its way to heaven. And now we are going to look into the heavenly realms and see the things that are happening there as well. And so notice the shift that now takes place in Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let's start with that section and look at the things that transpire now in the the heavenly realm. Uh, Very interesting beginning, especially as we look at verse 6, and immediately we're struck by the description that is given there, that there is a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And immediately we go, well, what is the sons of God? Who are these that are now presenting themselves before the Lord? Who is this group of people? Uh, I find it interesting. The, the NIV and there may be a couple of other translations will say uh, angels and, and I would say that that is probably being too precise and probably being a little too presumptive uh, about who these beings were we know in the Old Testament that the Hebrew knows how to use the word for angels we see angels occur in all kinds of places like with Sodom and Gomorrah and the things like that uh, but that's not the word that's used here and I think that's useful for our consideration Consideration. And so to speak of these as sons of God, well, who are these spiritual beings? Because we see them assembling before the throne of God. And I think there's a couple of things that we can take in consideration of that is remember that we are looking at something that has been written for us in poetry. It is in the wisdom books. It is not historical narrative. And so what you have is a setting of the table, a setting of some pictures for us. And what you commonly had in the ancient Near Eastern world is a king would call for his dignitaries to call for his very important people, those who were a part of his royal 
royal court and summon them to him and receive reports from them, take counsel for them, give them directives on how they ought to go about. And that would be a fairly common image of what the throne room scene of a typical king would look like in ancient Near Eastern times. That appears to be the same idea of what is happening here. And the scriptures use that kind of picture in a number of places where we see God with these spiritual dignitaries, if you will, surrounding God. And you have these kinds of conversations and discussions going on. And sometimes we read those and we're probably a little bit thrown by that. But there's nothing to be thrown by in terms of that there being a divine council in which there is God as king and that there are all these spiritual beings that God has created who participate in this spiritual realm and come before the throne of God and it appears that we have in verse 6 one of those days where those spiritual beings are doing that very thing. I put on the screen a a few places where we see this kind of divine counsel, this God among the counsel of spiritual beings. I'll read one of them to you that we know probably fairly well and we often are kind of left scratching our head and we just kind of go, okay. And that's kind of where we're at with Job 1 verse 6 where we just kind of go, okay. And that's in 1 Kings 22 verse 19. And we have there, and Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne and all the host of heaven standing beside Him on His right hand and on His left hand. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lion spirit in the mouth of all those prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lion spirit in the mouth of all of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. That's an interesting window by which we just kind of go, okay. (laughs) But here's God with a heavenly council, with a discussion among heavenly beings saying, all right, we need to do something about Ahab. And very interesting, one comes forward and says, I think we should do this. And another one says, I think we should do this. And one of them says, I'll be a lying spirit. And God goes, that sounds good. Let's do that. And that's, I think, all that's being pictured here is the same kind of ancient Near Eastern concept of a throne room, is that God is using what we understand in terms of physical realities of what we would understand a king to be and a king to do and what his throne room would look like and how you would have dignitaries and those of administration going in and out all the time with the discussions of the things that are going on within the realm of the kingdom. Well, here is God on the throne ruling over heaven and earth, and we have these heavenly spiritual dignitaries going in and out with all the things that are going on about the earth. That just seems to be the the idea behind it. And so that's why I say angels might just be a little bit too precise as simply just messengers of God that we read about, but it may be more of this divine counsel like we read in the Psalms, like we see here in 1 Kings 22, that we have this day where they're all coming before God. Now what is particularly interesting about that is in verse 6, when these sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord, we have another person who comes in among them. And I think all of our translations say Satan came in among them. It is important to keep in mind that Satan is not a name. And I think we, we kind of can lose sight of that pretty quickly when we read about Satan, that that's not his name. That is a description. That is a title, which means 
the accuser. And that's the, the description that's given to him. In fact, in the book of Job, every single time you see his name here, the, in the Hebrew there is the definite article that is found in front of it. If we were to be literal, it would always say, the Satan, the Satan, the Satan. He is the accuser. So the sons of God have come in to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser is there as well. It's pretty interesting that this is a very rare term in the Old Testament. As much as we are very familiar and very comfortable with the term of Satan because of all the New Testament references, it only occurs two other places in the Old Testament besides in the book of Job. That's in 1 Chronicles 21.1 and Zechariah 3.1. You might remember the Zechariah 3.1 pretty well where you have there Joshua the high priest and there is the Satan, the accuser, accusing the high priest because of the filthy garments that are on him in that vision. And so what you are supposed to see then is here is a gathering of the spiritual heavenly dignitaries before the throne room of God and the accuser is here as well. And we have then the Lord saying to Satan, where have you come from? Again, let us keep in mind this is not historical narrative by which God had no idea where the Satan had been and where he's come from. And I think it's important to keep in mind that what we have in these first two chapters is the setup. This is the setting. We need to know what Satan is doing. We need to know what is going on in the spiritual realm. God is not sitting here going, please clue me in. I don't know where you've been. I think it's pretty evident where he's been, especially the answer that is given is by no surprise of what the Satan is doing is it says there in uh, verse 7 from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it I don't think any of us can read that in an innocent way that the Satan was saying well I've been taking a tour of all the wonders of the world and it's a really beautiful creation that you have there in the Grand Canyon's marvelous and boy what a wonderful world it is He's causing trouble. He's the accuser. He's he's the troublemaker. He is certainly a malevolent force that we see in the spiritual places. And that's what we begin to learn in the New Testament when you come to like James chapter 4 and verse 7 that we see the Satan described as one who is bent on our ruin and is in the process of attempting to discredit God and is accusing of God. In Revelation 12 verse 10 we're told that the Satan accuses us day and night before God. And so we are getting a picture that this is not somebody of favor and good. But what we are going to have before us here is now this uh, confrontation, this dialogue, because it is interesting after we have what is informing us about where the Satan has been, he's going to and fro about the earth, he's walking up and down it, very much picturing and equaling what we know about him. He's this roaring lion seeking out whom he may devour, so we're not surprised by this description of him. It is fascinating to me that here we have the Lord now bringing up Job. That it seems that here's this heavenly council and we have the Satan, the accuser, he comes in as well. And the Lord turns to him and says, have you seen my servant Job? God is the initiator of everything that we're about to look at in this book. God is the one that draws the attention of the Satan to Job and says, this man is righteous. Now, it is important to highlight that when it says in verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? 
that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. We have the Lord verifying the narrative of the first five verses. The first five verses says there was this man who was Job, he was upright, he was blameless, he feared God, turned away from evil. And now the next scene is the Lord telling Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Because guess what? There's no one like him. He fears God, he turns away from evil, he's blameless, he's upright. It's a complete validation of that. And I think that's important to see. It might perhaps, I'll put a couple disclaimers on this, but perhaps what you have here might be a semblance or a kind of idea of what the Apostle Paul talks about later on in the book of Ephesians. When you have this strange teaching about how through the church the manifold wisdom of God is being put on display in the heavenly realms. You seem to have a picture of that right here. Is, hey heavenly realm. With all of my spiritual dignitaries who were coming in before me, and as well as the accuser who is here, have you all seen Job? He is blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He turns away from evil. That you see the scriptures talking about our lives being a display of the wisdom of God. And so that might be a little bit of a picture of what Paul was talking about when he spoke like that, that through the church, what God was able to do in saving people and reconciling them to himself, that he's able to point that out to the heavenly places and say, look at these, look at my people, look at these who belong to me. And God seems to be doing that here with Job, especially you can't help but underline two words here when you have God saying, my servant, that's I think, just precious and powerful. Here it is before all the dignitaries, before these heavenly beings and the accuser. And here is the Lord saying, have you seen my servant Job down there? Not just Job, which is great if you knew him by name. You know, be like, that's, that's awesome. You know my name. My servant Job. And so here is God giving us a picture about this man. And notice there is no argument about his righteousness. You don't have the Satan going, he's not righteous. There's no argument going on in the heavenly place. No, no, you have a, a false understanding about his righteousness. He's not blameless. He doesn't fear God. He's a, there's no argument about this. He is blameless. He is righteous. He is upright. He does fear God. He does turn away from evil. Throughout our study of the book of Job, Please never doubt this concrete truth because it is validated and verified again and again and again. Job is blameless. He is upright. He does fear God. He does turn away from evil. Nowhere come through this book and go, well, I'm not really, maybe he really wasn't that righteous. The book wants to establish if there's anything that it is sitting in the concrete is Job is a righteous person and there is no argument about it. No argument by God, no argument by the narrator and no argument by the accuser. Everybody agrees Job is righteous. Where the disagreement is, is why is he righteous? His righteousness is not the question. The reason for his righteousness is the question. Verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason or for nothing? And then notice what he says. 
Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Here's the thing, God. You have blessed him immensely. And what he's saying is, Job doesn't fear you for nothing. He's not righteous for nothing. He's not blameless for nothing. The reason why he's righteous is because you put a hedge around him. Around him, around his family, around his possessions. And you have blessed the work of his hands so that everything then that he touches has increased and is blessed. I don't know, we, we'd probably put in our terminology the Midas touch. I mean, you just, what, you, you've made it so that everything he does is successful. Everything that he does flourishes. You've put his hedge around him. So he says there in verse 11, if you touch all he has, if you strike at those possessions, if you tear that hedge down, Job will be a completely different person. He will not respond to you the way that he has in the past. He will curse you to your face. And so this is what Satan then charges God. God, you're good. And your goodness causes a problem. Because the only reason Job serves is because you bless him. The only reason he has any righteousness is because you do good by him. The only reason he fears you and serves you is because you have been so favorable to him in every way. I think this is such an important challenge for us because this is really the essence of the insult of Satan is if being rich is the result of righteousness then who wouldn't be righteous? If the result of being a follower of God are these kinds of blessings, then Lord, everybody's going to follow you. And that's a problem is what he's saying. You're manipulating them. Of course people follow you. Of course Job is righteous. You bless him so richly. Of course he's going to follow you. The point that he's making is that Job actually doesn't serve you. Job serves himself. It's in his own best interest to serve you. And so he is righteous because you bless him. And so that would be the result. And who wouldn't be righteous? Of course Job is righteous. Because look at the results of the things that you have done in in his life. In essence, the charge really is laid against God. God, you are too generous. You're too gracious. You're too kind. And because you are blessing people, because you work this good in their lives, they're actually serving you for false motives. They don't serve you for you. They serve you for themselves. And so watch, if I take away that benefit, he won't serve you anymore. He'll curse you instead. That becomes the whole of the question is is Job interested in God for his own prosperity? Or is he interested in God because of who God is? That is the whole dynamic that is laid down in the beginning of this whole thing. And I want us to recognize that, yes, in a sense, Job is on trial because we are going to look at Job and consider, is he going to serve God no matter what? 
But ultimately, we recognize that the challenge is on God because notice he doesn't really direct this about Job. The accuser is directing this to God. The reason why Job, and by I think by extension anybody, serves you is because of what you do for them. Because you bless them and you make them rich and prosperous and do good by them. And you put a hedge around him and his household and his family and his possessions. And the work of his hand prospers. And so God is the one who is under the charge by the Satan. And he's just saying, look, how can you begin to wonder if this man is truly righteous? Because you're too good to him. Take it all away. And then let's see what happens. Verse 13. Now there was a day when the sons and the daughter, his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding besides, beside them. And the Sabaeans came and fell among them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet still speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. I want you to get a feel of the attack that Satan does right here. It is a a staggering amount of loss that happens within a single day to lose literally everything. All of his children are killed. All of his possessions are wiped out. These raids and attacks that come, the servants are killed. They fall by the edge of the sword. The fire of God rains down. All kinds of calamity strikes all within this scene. And I just want us to get a sense that when you read that and just put yourself in the shoes, can you imagine the staggering amount of loss that just happened in a moment's notice? Just imagine everything that you know about life completely ripped from your hands. Your job is gone. Your bank accounts are dried up. Every asset that you have of any value has been stolen from you and your children are dead. Your life is no longer remotely what it used to be. And I want us to see something here because if that was not bad enough, There is actually a sinister nature of what Satan is doing here. If you keep your hand here and go over to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I want you just to notice something, what Deuteronomy says here. Deuteronomy chapter 28, back a couple of chapters, a few books, to Deuteronomy 28 and verse 31. And as I read this, see if this sounds just like what has just happened to Job. Deuteronomy 28 verse 31 
Your oxen, your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes and you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized before your face and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. The nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and all of your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the side that, that is your own, that your eyes see. The Lord will strike you on your knees and on your legs with grievous boils that cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. How interesting that Satan uses all of the same animals and all of the same destruction and when we get to chapter 2 the same disease and the same affliction that Deuteronomy describes. And the reason why that is sinister in these descriptions of all of these things being affected, you're going to lose all of your animals, your sons and daughters are going to be gone, the fruit of the ground is all going to be affected, boils from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, is because in Deuteronomy 28, those were curses for disobedience. And do you see what Satan just made this look like to Job? This is very much a lot of the problem that Job has, where here he is righteous and he appears to be afflicted as disobedient. And this becomes his grand question. How can this be? The sinister nature by which Satan does this is to intend for Job to take all this information in and go, well, God is judging me and striking me down for for error, but but I haven't done anything wrong. And so we see Job struck severely with massive, massive loss and with massive pain. And it sounds like that what Job has experienced and the things that he will experience is that God has done this because Job is sinful. It will be the conclusion of the three friends by looking at the events that have transpired in Job's life. The three friends will look at it and say, well, don't you know what that means? This means you've sinned. And that's why this beginning is so critical. Job is blameless, he is righteous, he's upright, he fears God. But on the surface of everything that happens to Job, it doesn't look like it at this moment. And the response of Job is now found to us in verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's talk about his response. First, the tearing of the robe and the shaving of the head. Ancient Near Eastern expressions of grief and pain and mourning. Very common what you would do in the tearing of the clothes, the shaving of the head. 
indicating to all around you, you have suffered immensely. The falling to the ground is really amazing as well, because in falling to the ground, it is a physical posture that recognizes and accepts the significant act that has come from the hand of God. I put on the screen a few places where you see that in the scriptures, that when one falls down, it is an admission and a recognition that this is what has happened to me by the hand of God, which presses it all the more when you see him in great pain and in great mourning as he tears his robe and shaves his head, but he falls to the ground and it says that he worships, that he worships God. And what he says probably could not be the better answer could ever be given in such extreme, extreme loss. Verse 21, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You hear that response that he says, whether God gives it to me or whether God takes it away from me, God must be praised. God's name must still be honored. God must still be revered. God must still be worshipped. And here is what he's basically saying, that I do fear God for nothing. I don't fear him for what he gives me. He loses everything and falls to the ground and continues to worship God. And his attitude is, I didn't have it to start with, and I'm not going to have it at the end, so blessed be the name of the Lord. And in this, Job is vindicated because he truly does serve God for nothing. Not because of all the possessions, not because he's been richly blessed, not for everything that he has, not because he had ten children, not because he was the richest man in all the East. None of those things are the reason why he serves God. But more important, God is vindicated. Because God is able to bless people and people can still serve God for who he is and not for the blessings that he receives. This is a huge part of the vindication of God. God is able to richly bless His people and His people are still able to serve Him in those conditions. That they do not serve Him just because of all they have, but they will serve Him whether they are in prosperity or whether they are in poverty. And here is God vindicated and saying he is a righteous man. And those external circumstances have no bearing on the reason why he serves me. And that then causes us to wind the lesson by looking at us and just asking a very simple question. So what do we serve God for? Because this is the question of the heavenly places. This is the question of the cosmos. This is the question of every single individual that is ever created. What is the reason you serve God? Will you serve God if there is absolutely no tangible physical benefit that you receive on this earth? And to put it a little bit sharper, will you still serve God 
If you lose your house and you lose your cars and you lose your wealth and you lose your job and you lose every bit of asset and bank account that you possess, if you lose it down to nothing and you are on the sidewalk with no house, no cars, no wealth, and will you still serve God? If you lose all of your children to death in a single day, will you still serve God? If your spouse dies, will you serve God? If you lose everything that has any amount of value to you. Satan said, Job will not. Satan's accusation of humanity is they only serve for the physical benefit. They don't serve you. They serve for what they get. We talked about it this morning, but what you are seeing right here in this critical discussion between God and Satan is the true call of discipleship. Will you forfeit everything? Will you lose it all and still serve God? Friends, the Scriptures give us example after example after example of all kinds of people who made that kind of decision. The apostles walk away from their livelihoods. They walk away from everything they know of what is normal in life, become fishers of men, and all die for the cause of Christ. How about Daniel? We studied him not too long ago and his three friends. Will you serve God if you are still thrown in yet into the fiery furnace? Will you serve God if you are thrown into the lion's den? The answer of Daniel the three friends is yes. How about Joseph? Will you serve God if your brothers try to kill you and send you into slavery by which you are falsely accused of heinous crimes and thrown in a dungeon for years where your family forgets you? Will you still serve God if everything that you know about your life is stripped away from you? Joseph says, yes. They all proved that they served God for nothing. When you read Hebrews 11, these people who by faith served God for nothing. That's what's being said over and over again of each of those individuals. That's why you get that great one about Abraham. They looked for a better country, a heavenly one. They didn't look for the physical benefit. They didn't look for what are you going to give me right now? Make it good for me right here. Make it worth my while to serve you now. The whole concept of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me is the willingness to say, Lord, it can be all stripped away. You can rip it all from my hands and I will still serve you no matter what. How do we have that kind of faith? How can we have this faith that we see in Job? 
I think it's his words that are the instruction. I really think his words are the instruction right here. Because what he understands is that everything that he has is not deserved. And that none of it came from his own hand. Friends, that's not a small statement when you remember how wealthy Job is. It's not like, well, you know, he's kind of poor and he's, you know, he, he's like Lazarus. You know, he's just just longing to eat the crumbs of the rich people and he just doesn't have much. And so it's easy for him to say these things. The text gives us he is the richest man of all the East. He has it all. We talked in our Bible class, these numbers that are given to us are significant. This is ideal household, ideal family, ideal possessions. He has it all by every definition. And yet what he is able to understand is that everything that he has from the day of his birth has been a blessing of God. And that he has no right to demand of God that those blessings continue. That is probably the most staggering thing that he does right here. Hey, naked I came into this world and naked I go. Why should I suggest by any means that God has to continue to do for me tomorrow what he did for me today? And I think it's important for us to ask ourselves that question. Because it's easy for us to serve God under the umbrella that tomorrow will be like today. And Job thought that too. And it wasn't. And what will you do if your spouse dies tomorrow, your children die tomorrow? You lose your job tomorrow. All your wealth is stolen by identity and you have nothing left. It's all stripped away from you. If everything is taken away from you, does it change your faith in God at all? The final words. In all this, Job did not sin. He did not charge God with wrong. That's the goal in trials and suffering and distress. Do we serve God for nothing? Do we serve him for who he is because of his character, because he is the creator, because he is the almighty God, and not because I have two cars, a house, three kids, a wife, a white picket fence, and everything I could possibly want in this life. Do you serve God if tomorrow God takes it all away? We must be impressed by Job. For Job to say these words, to still worship God, to not flinch in his faith toward God, but faithfully pressing on, knowing that God is more valuable than anything that we have. More valuable than any relationship that we have in this life. God is supremely more valuable than that. May that be the heart that we have as we walk by faith with God. We'll sing our song now and we invite you to come to Jesus.
It's what Jesus was constantly trying to communicate to those who wanted to be his disciples. He would tell these short parables where he would say, you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? The kingdom of heaven is like this immense treasure that's buried in a field. And you know what that person does? He sells it all. He gives it all up and goes and buys the treasure. Jesus talked like this all the time about this is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to take up the cross. A mental readiness that we will forfeit it all to follow him. We've talked a lot in past months about perhaps even in persecution that may arise. Will you be willing to forfeit it all? Be like Daniel. Be like the three friends. And go and be faithful to God. See the love of God. See how good he is. And see that he is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And let that be the means by which that we get through any difficulty, any trial, any storm, any distress. For he is supremely valuable to our lives. Will you follow him? Turn away from your sins and come to him tonight. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins if you haven't done so. Won't you come and do that now?